Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey, 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 Future Fit Tribe. Guess what, guess what, guess what? I've got my favorite human in uh, the studio today. And it is Adriana Marie, without further ado. So about two years ago, I interviewed her, and she was actually on her way to Mars, the Mars One project. And we were planning this whole thing. I thought it was going to be my goodbye. It's going to be my last time to see her. And I gave her like a 3D printed spaceship and I gave her Mars bars and I gave her vodka because if you watch The Martian, they use potatoes to grow for food. And at that particular point, I thought, well, if you had to create alcohol, the only alcohol you'd probably be able to make there would be vodka. And then we had a few shots before the show. (laughs) (laughs) Now I remember where that little spaceship came from. (laughs) I definitely remember the vodka. Spaceship, not space cake. Yes, the 3D printed spaceship. I took it out of box the other day when I was moving. <laughs> now I remember where it was from. Uh, and we had a bit of vodka and everything. And, and then we had this amazing interview. And I called it the Mars to class. So she's back in studio today. And now today, things have changed quite a bit. She's she's still here. Um She's she's sorry sorry, you, sorry to disappoint, <laughs> but it's a real pleasure to see you. Again. <laughs> she's she's here, and then also the other thing is is that she started this new adventure, proudly human, which she's going to talk to us about. And more importantly, is we are in the middle of a pandemic, and I think we spoke about all of these things that's going to happen. So I just think that we're just going to start from the top. And maybe let's pick up the conversation. Why are you not on a ship on your way to Mars? Why are you still here? <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to be back with you, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Super exciting updates. Um, a lot's happened, obviously, uh, since uh, pre-pandemic, but also pre-traffic to Mars. So, I mean, I feel one step closer to Mars because, well, yeah, we've all been consuming a lot of media, obviously, the past couple of years. If we have been paying attention, the space industry has been like all systems go. So I can quickly run through a few of the developments that make me feel personally one step closer to getting to Mars. Um, We can start last year where South African-born Elon Musk and his uh, company SpaceX became the first private company to launch crew from Earth into space. So this is uh, to the space station currently, um, which is a, a few hundred kilometers up. So not the kind of distances we're looking at when we want to go to Mars. But this is a major milestone, getting humans off the surface of the planet into space. So the first private company to do that, they've already launched two sets of crews and are planning the first all private crew also to be launched with SpaceX to the space station. So that's a major development globally in the space industry to have the private sector now contributing to transport in that way. 
then last, um, between sort of June, July, we had three missions depart from Earth to Mars. So if three vehicles is considered traffic, we had until recently literally traffic between Earth and Mars. Uh, the United Arab Emirates has arrived in orbit last week um, around Mars. That's their first attempt uh, to go interplanetary wow. and successful. So that's a great achievement. Then the next day, China arrived successfully in orbit around Mars. They're going to deploy a rover to the surface uh, in May, I think it is. And in two days' time, so uh, soon, we're going to have a third arrival, and that's the NASA Perseverance rover, which also has a, a helicopter on board, the Ingenuity helicopter. So things are certainly heating up. Um, it's great to see countries uh, that haven't been in the, the mainstream space industry, you know, mm. like UAE, and now, of course, uh, the powerhouse of China exploring beyond the moon, which they were doing a lot of in 2019, now also to Mars. So it's exciting um, to have all these different countries involved in sending technology to our next door neighbor planet. It's so fascinating because I don't know, but I thought that it takes seven years to get to Mars. Or is this now a myth? Or what, how is it? Seven months. Oh, seven yeah, months. Six oh. to seven months. I mean, we hope to reduce that eventually with the propulsion systems that are not currently employed, uh, but using currently existing technology, it's around a seven-month trip. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so what is really going on in space currently? Why the importance of going to Mars? And, and what's the connection with Proudly Human? So Proudly Human um, just looks at contributing towards a future we can be proud of whatever planet we're on, which is pretty broad, but uh, we hope to get involved in a lot of different aspects. I mean, one thing we don't lack on Earth is challenges. And we, we face some of the biggest challenges that our society has ever faced. Um, at the heart of it, I would say, is our, our massively growing population. So we'll be at 8 billion and, and by 2050, 10 billion humans living on the single planet Earth, um, which is a beautiful and unique planet and uh, abundant in resources. You know, we've got 71% of our planet covered with liquid water, which, uh, as we know from studying other planets in the solar system, is unique uh, and precious. But yet we have 2.2 billion people out of the 8 billion, so a significant fraction of our population without access to, to safe water. So we are headed for several like uh, domino effect crises, you know, uh, I would say exploding population coupled with the industry required to support the technological needs of this exploding population. Um, you know, we're overburdening the environment by extracting resources, destroying habitats of, of uh, the creatures with whom we share this planet. So we're in the midst of a, a mass extinction event, which people have stopped talking about because the pandemic. Um, but yes, we are in the midst of a mass extinction event, not of humans, but of many other species with Can whom I we share the planet. With you? <laughs> so we've got problems. I mean, I don't need to emphasize the fact that we have problems um, and challenges that we need to overcome. But the point is that through exploration, we can get out of our comfort zone and come up with new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing the world, um, you know, expanding our view of what the world is. Because if we expand our view to the solar system, I mean, that's a immensely beautiful picture from which to look at Earth and perhaps a deeper appreciation for what we have here on Earth. Um, will be, you know, inculcated as we explore the the barren and very difficult places to live that exist beyond, which for me is super exciting. Mm. Um, but for those who enjoy the comforts of living on Earth, well, uh, surviving extreme conditions is something we're all going to have to think about, uh, whether we stay on Earth or whether we explore beyond. How do we become more resource efficient? How do we appreciate the resources that we have? And how do we become better at, at technologies for using resources uh, more efficiently and more wisely? You know what's concerning is like all these conspiracy theorists that still believes that the earth is flat. 
Yeah, that that's a that's difficult a, one. If you're going to say <laughs> there are people who believe we haven't been to the moon, I've got like several arguments for that. But the flat Earth, no, I find it difficult. I like everything. <laughs> if you look up in the in the sky, everything is round. You Same can't someone <laughs> just buy them around the world ticket. <laughs> uh, what's happening with Richard Branson? Yeah, Virgin Galactic is planning to launch tourists uh, any moment now. I'm not up to date on what they have planned for this year, but I think this year was a potential launch of their first tourist. They had an accident a while back, so they've been working on on safety. But they have sold tickets already. I haven't bought one, so I can't tell you the exact <laughs> price on that. Not cheap, I'm sure, but uh, there are there is a list of people uh, on standby to to participate in their crewed private flights into space, into orbit around Earth. Um, yeah, Elon Elon Musk and SpaceX are planning of all private crew to the space station from 2022, I believe. Um, so yeah, private individuals going to space is becoming a, a thing. Yeah, it's just it just feels like there's still this divide, you know, like the new planet is going to be accessible to the people that's got all the money, and then like they destroy everything here, and then they're just going to go back there and they're going to destroy things over there. That's my point of view. It might, might be wrong, but I mean, like if we just look at all the people that's leading, like if I just look at some of the politicians, I'm with all the money in the world, and then I just get worried about what about the poor people that's always been poor and they're just left behind by the doing of the capital world the greed definitely and that's a big problem with the way we do things on earth and amongst the objectives of getting to mars in my mind is exploration is looking for evidence of life yes but on the other hand it's to demonstrate an alternative to the way we run the the economic system here on earth which uh, we can do way better i don't want to say it's failed completely because obviously a lot of people have benefited but a lot of people have not and this divide between rich and poor has increased during the pandemic. And as these crises emerge, you know, whether it's this mass extinction event or climate change, extreme weather, outbreak of another pandemic that's even worse, you know, it seems that these events actually w- increase the divide between rich and poor. So you're right, the, the trajectory of the world is a worrying one where we get this kind of splits in society of the haves and the have-nots. But uh, demonstrating a new way to do things on Mars where profit is not the the ultimate uh, priority for activities there um, is is one of the objectives. And I think, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Trump or some others who are holding all the money. <laughs> Luckily, I don't, I don't think they want to go to Mars. They're quite happy living their comfortable life here Maybe on Earth. Maybe we can send them to Venus. The, yeah, that's, that could be an option. <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of people who go to Mars, I think, are going to be the kind of people who have the expertise and the, the courage and the curiosity to go and define a new way of doing things. I don't think it's going to be the comfortable people with all the resources from Earth mm. who are going to move to Mars directly. So we've got a small window period of, of setting things up up in a way that um, is not based on greed as we see things here on earth okay so we're in the middle of a pandemic all of these all traffic that's going to mars and all these activities what if the virus accidentally arrives there it's i'm just putting it out there like it's a whole new ecosystem I mean, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it. Like, we can't control it here on Earth as much as we're trying, and it keeps on morphing. You know, isn't it a dangerous time to explore a new planet during a pandemic? Oh, viruses are uh, something we have to uh, accept as part of the natural world. They've been around, uh, arguably, even before more complex life emerged. They're the kind of simplest, uh, whether they're living or not, uh, remains under debate, but because they require a host. But viruses are the simplest kind of a, a manifestation of a of a DNA based kind of organism, let's say. 
yeah, they're going to be around no matter what. Um, and of course, uh, quarantine has always been an important part of sending crew to the space station, for example, to make sure that indeed, as you say, a pandemic doesn't break out in the small enclosed space where probably everyone has a high probability of, of getting it. Um, yeah, but I mean, as we've seen, staying on Earth doesn't help to reduce the probability of pandemics. Um, the kind of, of uh, sanitization and controlled environment in which people will be living on Mars would be a, yeah, maybe a better better place to manage such a thing. I say maybe because, um, yeah, who knows what kind of um, mutations might occur in an environment like Mars, which uh, we have no experience of in person mm. yet. Yeah, but we've always done things through trial and error. Um, so there's no reason to stop now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I, I sometimes look at the inventions that I see on Facebook, YouTube, and I'm just going, for what? Why are you taking resources out of our planet to create something to lift a chair up for you? <laughs> or something ridiculous like I just think it's convenience for the sake of convenience and I, I don't know I don't I don't get it and I think a lot that I've learned through this pandemic is the importance of awareness and the importance of being far more conscious um, what your impact is on the environment I, I'm trying to eat less meat I even read on uber facts right and this is just for all the farters out there. But I read that you can actually burn 50 calories <laughs> by farting. And a person farts an average of 27 times a day. So <laughs> if that is the case, we would just need to be very conscious that we don't, um, for every action that we do, that we don't destroy our planet. But I'm sure it's not destroying it. I think you, you said that it's actually useful, right? Yeah, uh, methane is a component of what comes out of the fat. <laughs> and on Mars, this is a precious resource to create rocket fuel. So, um, yeah, we should be thinking maybe not our own individual fast. <laughs> if we're talking about a, ho a whole herd of cattle, you know, then it becomes a significant uh, resource in terms of the methane production. <laughs> Yeah, but we've got to, the circular economy, the green, you know, call it call it what you will, but it implies getting rid of this concept of waste and rather thinking about how yeah. we can re, you know, reinsert whatever this previously called waste is can be a resource um, in another person's um, way of looking at things. So yeah. this has to be a way we start thinking more. It's so so interesting that you're mentioning this, but I mean, um, so I'm trying to be a lot more conscious in my eating. So I try to eat less, you know, less meat, more plant-based as, as much as I can. But then if you look at this beyond meat and beyond meat comes from California, I think, and it comes via boat, all the lovely emissions, all in the name of veganism. If the whole world turns out to become vegans, where are we going to plant all of this? How are we going to be able to to? Grow? I mean, there's just so, it's just my mind. Like, there's so many questions that I have. Like, no, we've got big we've got big problems. I mean, if we do, if we have 10 billion people living on Earth by 2050, we don't have nearly enough food uh, with the current production rates. We don't have nearly enough food. But do you see people focusing on on boosting agricultural output? No. In fact, with mm. urbanization, we see less people living in rural areas doing agriculture. With climate change, perhaps less rainfall in areas that were producing a lot of agricultural goods. So, yeah, that's that's a huge problem. So, where where are we going to get food? And I mean, these are all questions which, in my mind, and the and as a researcher with that kind of background, I like to think about the extreme cases and then try to solve for those because then mm. looking at the medium cases becomes easier. So, living on Mars is an extreme case, but if we can figure out a way to incorporate most waste back into the system to be extremely efficient in our use of, of power, of water, 
food production um, and just to specifically cater for everyone's nutritive requirements, communication systems, these are the basics. So if we think about how to provide these in an environment that's extreme like space or the surface of Mars, then using the same technologies on Earth, um, it becomes easy to roll these out on a large scale. So the examples of this um, LED lighting for maybe we're thinking of like the marijuana industry in terms of growing stuff indoors, but uh, many types of agricultural outputs are producible indoors in like precise controlled conditions. Uh, and LED lighting was first developed significantly for the space station. Oh. So because they were trying to grow food there, uh, member particular water filtration membranes have been developed for filtering water in the space station because obviously water is quite heavy to launch um, you know, every liter required by the crew living there and a lot of the water is recycled within the space station. So membrane technology was developed for use of people living in the space station. Uh, solar Solar technology, you know, Pretty much all of our of our technology expeditions that have left Earth and gone on, like the Curiosity rover on the surface of Mars and Voyager 1, which has left the solar system, and these are all running on solar power. So developments in making you know thin film, lightweight uh, photovoltaics, etc., has been driven by the space industry. So this is not an idea I came up with. This is there's evidence for the fact that solving for problems in an extreme environment like the space station triggers new ideas, um, new ways of being efficient, and new technologies um, that of course can be used. You know, LED lighting, membranes for filtration, water filtration, and solar power. These are the cornerstones of what we need to be able to produce resources for a growing population of humans. You know, power, water, and food are some of the most fundamental needs that we have. So um, crazy. Connectivity on top of that. And, of course, our ability to communicate via satellite, to communicate with the Curiosity rover that tweets photos of uh, its adventures on the surface of Mars. This is all a demonstration of the kinds of uh, breakthroughs in tech and communications technologies that have emerged from the space industry. So if we have people living on the surface of Mars, I mean, this is going to be on another level in terms of the new ideas and technologies that emerge from that exercise. Mm. I noticed in, in your um, entire career, you spend a lot of time with children going to schools and, and educating them as the future generation. If we look at Greta Thunberg, we had Faith Popcorn. Um, we interviewed her on the Carmen Murray Show, but also on The Outsiders with John Flismus. And um, we interviewed... Faith and she said to her, she sees Greta Thunberg she, as the messiah of the environment. Um, she, you know, she, she started this movement and the young generation might be the generation that can save us. What is your point of view and, and how do you think the school systems need to change to start driving awareness for the things that we need for the future? Because I, I feel sometimes the stuff that we are seeing our children learning at school is not half as relevant as the problems that we need to solve, the critical mm. thinking that is necessary. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, speaking from a personal point of view, the school system is a big failure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't enjoy it much at all. Um, so I have sympathy for young people who are still being put through the same 200-year-old system, um, the, you know, the school uniforms, the teacher standing at the front desk and everyone else making notes, etc. There's nothing much has changed. However, we've got a lot of interesting individuals who retain their ability to think freely and to question and to, uh, you know, question the status quo, basically, and ask, is this the best way to do things? Who emerged in spite of the school system? So, yes, we need to change the education system. Um, yes, we need to focus on, you know, solving challenges that are really important for our survival as a species, not just for interest's sake, but mm -hmm. actually for survival. 
But in case we don't have time to do that, um, I think what we can do, uh, you know, as parents or as mentors or as people who interact with children is just encourage them to retain their curiosity. It's not about teaching them to be curious. We know that children are born curious. Mm. Uh, humans are born curious. Um, we get adulterated, you know, as we go through the education yes, system, yes. <laughs> told that this is the way it is and don't question it. So in that way, I was really happy to have studied uh, physics, although I didn't enjoy science much at school. I must say, um, when they talked about the current bun model of the atom, I said, no, these guys can't be serious. You're telling me it's like a bun with like raisins in it and this is how we must be the atom. <laughs> I said, no, these guys aren't serious. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of weird things that you get taught at school, but I think for me, physics and science taught me that uh, you can come up with theories and then you need to ask questions and then uh, design experiments to try and test your conclusions and to try and refine your theories about things. And this is a great way to go about life. This is how we should all be going about life, to not accepting the way that things are, but rather testing and learning for ourselves, um, you know, which way we want to think about things um, and also questioning the way we're doing things as a society. Um, and a lot of it is, is not optimal, <laughs> to say the least. A lot of it is not optimal. So instead of stifling that voice in your head that says, this seems ridiculous, we should all be getting together and saying, this is ridiculous. Can we, can yeah. we switch to a new way of doing things? Um, because uh, I don't like to become apocalyptic <laughs> and talk about you know, <laughs> running out of time, but I think it is becoming clear that we are running out of We're time. We're going to be extinct, um, you just said. Sorry. Maybe not in our lifetime, but <laughs> yeah, well, back to the, to the youth that you mentioned. I mean, oh it's going to be make or break for them because totally. you know, we've, run, we've run this planet into the ground, let's say. We have not supported the environment. Yeah, we might say that longevity has increased, access to healthcare has improved, you know, maybe less people are starving to death. It's very difficult to interpret statistics in an objective mm. way, but there are statistics that show these things. But what we are not including in the equation then is the environment. We don't live in isolation from the environment. We are part of the environment and our technology and our sophistication and our knowledge has maybe convinced us that we are separate. We are better from, better than nature. We are above nature somehow. Mm. We can get away with, you know, if we've got our, our iPhone in our pocket, you know, we've got the world in our pocket. We can go anywhere and do anything. But <laughs> when That's our true. breathable air is polluted, when our water is polluted, when our oceans uh, have species extinction events going on, it impacts the whole climate of the planet. So I think when we look at maybe that society has improved in some ways, we have to look at the impact it's had on the place we live. And mm. this is where the real danger is. Um, mm. And we can't predict on what time frame things are going to start shifting. And already we're seeing extreme weather and other things predicted as effects of climate change, um, which is a result of our industry, which is a result of our activity on this planet. So I'm, I'm not saying any of this is good or bad, but these, this is the reality. So we need to, to change aspects of the way that we live in order to uh, foster a better relationship with, with nature, essentially. The, the air we breathe, the food we eat, this is nature. We are part of it. So we need to acknowledge that and get back more in touch with our environment. Mm, it's, it's so true. I mean, like, you know, my husband at some point, like a few years ago, he's like, all Sky News is talking about is the ocean. Like, it's just uh, the ocean. What is going on? And all of a sudden, when you go to the beaches and you start seeing around the world, it's not just about what's happening above, you know, the earth. It's what's happening beneath mm. the earth. Um, there was an experiment that I saw recently, and we need to see more of these experiments um, that were showing without the coral reef, it can't quiet in the ocean. So the ocean can't simmer down and, and almost, if I can put it this way, relax. So the coral reef prevents that wild, um, hectic waters 
I don't know if I'm explaining it in the right way. I, I hope that you can visualize this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but without coral, all of that algae and seaweed a, and whatever, we, of course, that's a big, big problem. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm thinking tsunamis. I'm thinking all all of those kind of things. It's fascinating. And then I just wonder. You know, there's so many people that just don't care about the environment. And if we all can just do something, we can make a bit, well, not maybe not a big enough difference, but we can do something, right? Yeah, I think uh, when uh, I'm asked for practical tips, I kind of draw a blank. But that's because my main message is that I, I cannot come up with uh, solutions that make sense for other people. What's really important, though, is that we are true to ourselves and that when something is ridiculous, we say that mm. this is ridiculous and we understand why. Because there's so many habits that we have in society that don't make sense, so many directions that we're headed um, that we feel a bit uncomfortable about, you know, like the profit-driven nature of almost everything we do. There's something wrong with this. Um, the assumption that everybody will aim to collect more personal resources through every transaction that they make, and this is like page one out of the economics textbook, you know, each agent, uh, each agent will aim to maximize the personal gain from each transaction that they're involved in. I mean, then we can see it's pretty obvious that we arrive in the point we are now where we've uh, exploited the environment to the extent that we have. It's obvious. It's predictable. Mm. Um, so can we start thinking about about ways to shift that? Can we have other objectives in mind besides, you know, making money? And this, this is a big one. <laughs> this is a big change to think about. But um you know, how can each person interpret this in their own way? Uh, and that's that's up to everyone, I think. But we, we have to be firm in our in our beliefs. Um, mm. I think talk about things, always ask questions. Um, if something seems questionable, it probably is. So, you know, create a committee and question that, start a company that, that does that. Just thinking about one example, um, next week we're off to Namibia to do a location scout for our off-world project, which, we, which we're launching this year. So we've got to bring all the solar panels with to to power our atmospheric water generator. So the atmospheric water generator can generate up to 100 liters a day, one unit. Um, so this this is enough for like a team of 10 for drinking for sure. A little, a little dash of a shower maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the amount of panels we need to power it are, are like almost 20 panels. Sure. And batteries. So when you're looking at the amount of metals and the weights, basically, we're trying to think whether we sure. can put this in a backy or not. It's like almost bigger than a backy load just to power 100 liters of water a day. Um, so we may think, you know, renewable energy is fantastic and it, it is a development from coal because we know burning coal emits a lot of carbon dioxide and we're already under pressure <laughs> with respect to emissions. Yes. So, yeah, solar is great, but these metals have to be extracted, processed. When we discard panels, they have to be carefully, you know, recycled if possible in specific ways because these are precious metals in the end that we need to use again and not just put on a dump somewhere. The batteries, I mean, here's another set of uh, specific metals and, and other resources and minerals that are needed to be mined from under the surface. So the environmental impact of the mining all the way through to what we do with this equipment when it's broken are very serious questions that we need to to ask ourselves. So, yeah, we definitely need a revolution in batteries. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some big some big ones out there. New propulsion systems to be able to leave the solar system. That's a great one. If anyone's and looking now you for have to big, press for one big for English. <laughs> what propulsion? What what? Better what? rocket technology. I mean, currently getting to Mars, <laughs> as you say, is not seven year, but almost as bad. Seven month trip. We need to reduce that, and we need to revolutionize ah. the way we extract power um, because the batteries that we are using are pretty much the same concept as was developed in the 1800s. Sure. You know, you have an anode and a cathode and some kind of uh, liquid like a salt water solution in between the two. <laughs> uh, I, as I realized when I was teaching batteries, you know, not much has changed in terms of how we envisage uh, storage of energy. So, 
yeah, those are revolutions in, in science. So we need to put money into people being able to sit and think, um, not about how to make money for the company or the research organization that they're working for. That doesn't <laughs> achieve revolutions. Yeah. These people need to be encouraged to be curious because uh, many of the inventions we've come up with so far have been curiosity-driven. And in this now profit-driven world where we live, it's very difficult to allow the freedom to come up with a new battery or a new propulsion system. So, yeah, it all comes back to curiosity. If we can encourage kids to ask big questions about everything they see around them, then, you know, out of those 10 questions, you know, one of them turns out to be a whole new industry. I, I totally agree. I know my big question that I asked when I was small. If God is there, who created him? Yeah. <laughs> that was always my mom. Never had the answer. But no, that's a good one. <laughs> like... Um, and then, okay, but if he was created by someone else, well, who created him then? It was just this, nev- I was very hectic as a child. I was concerned about plastic when I was four years mm. old. You know, if it can't be recycled, where is Where's it, it going? going? And, you know, my, my, my family had all the answers in the world and everybody had. And one particular thing, and I can remember because how we grew up religiously, scientists were almost dissed in those days because it proves a theory um, and it goes maybe against the religion and the and the belief system, and was almost like never trust the scientists. It was really the way, like how we I grew up. I don't think much has changed, especially <laughs> now with all this misinformation around like, vaccines and whatever. No, it's probably gotten worse. Yeah, and and I think we need to to start giving um, a lot more gravitas and attention to scientists. Um, and making an active pledge to start learning more from them because I don't think that there's enough out there for us to learn from. Yeah, I think people need to learn more science for sure, but I wouldn't necessarily say we need to put more faith in scientists because that's, oh, also, no. dan- that's also a dangerous path <laughs> where there's a bit of knowledge held by a few. So I think it's great now that we have the internet, which, you know, when we were growing up, I feel sorry for our parents. I suppose we couldn't even Google things <laughs> to like figure out the answers to our questions. Um, but nowadays, yeah, there's so much access to information. Uh, even watching YouTube clips can, uh, you know, teach you more about quantum physics than you knew before. And this is a good thing. Um, yeah, so then question, we even need to question the scientists, we even need to question the conclusions of the pharmaceutical companies, we need to question the government motivations. <laughs> it all sounds very complicated, but I also think we have some intuition in this regard. Mm. Um, and maybe we need to take in the information, but also remember that we have the the gift of intuition, um, mm. which can help us to, to understand, um, yeah, maybe which questions to ask. Yeah, because you, you're only as smart as the questions you ask. Um, yeah, so you just ask a lot of them and you can make up for the quality. <laughs> oh, gosh. I hope I'm asking the right questions. I'm sweating here. Well, when, no. you, when you were talking about uh, religion, I remembered I was in a school in Peter Maritzburg once and this was the most difficult question I've ever been asked. So right in the beginning of my talk, there was this girl in the front row with her hand up, which is probably about 10. And I, I told her, put your hand down, I'll get to you at the end of the talk. But she she didn't. She held her hand up the whole way through the talk. Like, her hand <laughs> must be numb by the end. And I said, okay, yes, you first. You've had your hand up the whole talk. And she said, okay, well, I'm going back to the beginning of your talk. So you said that the Big Bang created the universe. And she said, yes, fine. But we've been told that God created the universe. So now tell me which is right. <laughs> oh, I saw yeah. the teachers dying a thousand deaths in the back. It's a, like a Christian girls' school. <laughs> and I said, uh, I thought about it a bit and I said, well, you know, science shows us that the, the 
Big Bang preceded the creation of the universe as we know it. And religion says that God had potentially created the Big Bang. So maybe God created the Big Bang, which created the universe, um, or maybe something else. But I said the beautiful thing is the kind of questions you are asking are perfectly spot on because you get to decide what you think um, the answer to those questions is. And that's the beautiful part. Um, that you get to decide what you want to believe because in the end I cannot tell you the answer to those questions. I can only give you different evidence uh, either way. Um, and that, that's kind of the point, I guess, that we get to we get to decide based on the evidence what we believe. And we should also be flexible in that um, because new evidence arises all the time and we need to adjust adjust our beliefs accordingly. Okay, I was thinking more about science than religion in that <laughs> statement, not to offend any religious beliefs. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a difficult conversation because um, we all have different belief systems and, you know, there's no judgment against what, what people believe and it's trying to make sense of the data. I think our previous um, interview, we were talking about data points. It just starts with a data point and, and trying to find out what works for you. But at the same time, we, we also... Um, our storytellers, I think, as human beings, can't have a hundred religions. One, only one of them can be right. <laughs> I don't know. For, for me, I see more similarities between different religions than differences. So I think of them as one collective group. Well, we'll only find out later when <laughs> yeah. we go to the other side. And no disrespect to anybody. I'm just like, we are really just having a robust conversation about this because, you know, it's very interesting. And I believe that um, we should have children on in our board meetings because our children are actually going to ask the right questions, questions that we need answers to. And how do we get to those answers? Um, one of my friends posted her little son sitting in the back of the vehicle and she asked him, so what would you like to do? He says, no, he thinks that we should create this massive, big, invisible gun. And then we shoot and then it actually goes and it looks for the coronavirus. And then it goes and shoots out all of the little coronaviruses and then we will all be safe. But that's what he, he, he saw in his mind. And I was just like, you know what? It's that kind of like thinking um, from children. It's no, just, I'm already thinking. How, how, yeah, I'm the you, kind of you're like, That's an interesting <laughs> concept. But it's like. Um, it's almost like we learn to think in a box when we get older. I would never forget, um, I had this deep conversation with a friend of mine. We were sitting at a conference and there was all these children on the stage and they were asking them questions. What do they think of this marketing campaign? What do they think of that marketing campaign, etc.? And the younger the children are, the more honest mm. they are. And they have such a big influence in the household and what gets purchased. And um, I discussed this with one of my friends and I said to her, it was just fascinating. She said, but think about this logically. Like when you're a child, you, you are exceptionally curious. Say what you think. You ask the questions. But then as you grow older, you become politically correct because you're told not to do this, not to do that. Then you get into the corporate world and then you really have to fit within a certain mm -hmm. <laughs> structure <laughs> and even what you feel and what you think, if it goes against your grain, you have to keep your mouth shut because you have you need that paycheck in the end of the month. <laughs> Maybe that's why I resigned. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear lordy! Uh, yeah, but, I didn't last long in corporate. <laughs> but it's, I mean, uh, yeah, corporate for me is a, is a hard one, and I mean, like my focus, for example, working with organisations is creating healthier businesses through head, heart, and hand. Like, how can we work together, um, come up with ideas that can do better things that's passionately driven, but also they shared value. We, we're actually fixing problems rather than creating more. But then we've got cause and effect, and mm -hmm. we can't run away from it. For everything that you do, there is a, a negative. 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, thinking about teams, whether it's in corporate or or a group of people who are the first to arrive on Mars, um, that's kind of behind what we're trying to do at, at Proudly Human. So our off-world project consists of specially selected teams that will arrive in some of the most extreme environments on Earth into areas where there's no infrastructure. So they'll build all of the infrastructure required to run each of their projects. Each uh, applicant will, will propose a project. And then uh, depending on the location where we go, so to give some clues, I've been to the Oman Desert on a location scout. I'm going to Namibia on a location scout. I've been to Antarctica on a location scout. So in terms of temperature, in terms of lack of water, um, these are some of the kind of uh, extreme conditions that, that we want to focus on not only surviving, but actually fostering community spirits in spite mm. of or, or actually because of the extremity of the environment. So I think all teams everywhere on planet Earth um, feel they are in some kind of extreme conditions uh, this year and last based on what we thought was normal in 2019. Everyone's under some kind of extreme pressure from some direction or another to change the way perhaps that things were done typically before. Um, so we, again, as I said, take it to the extreme. So let's go to a desert environment where there's no nearby water, um, bring our technology, set up camp run our projects um, and we've actually opened applications for these projects so nice. let me let me talk a bit about what kind of projects you know people might think well I'm I'm not an adventure explorer and I don't plan on leaving planet earth so this is not not a project for me and I, I beg to differ because I would like to think well I believe all of us contribute to the community we're part of in some way or another so this is a great thought experiment to think what do I with my personality type with my skill set with my enjoy or the things I enjoy doing how do I contribute to a community or how would I contribute to a community in a really extreme place um, so whether you are the morning yoga instructor and also the paramedic whether you are the chef who's also tending to the greenhouse, um, whether you are the beer brewer who's also karaoke Friday DJ, uh, whether you are the MMA coach who's also the archaeologist. Mm. I'm throwing things together here because we'd like to bring in multi-skilled people. So that's that's one kind of requirement. Um, being over 18 and bringing more than one type of expertise to the project is what we're looking for. You know, a counsellor is something we're going to certainly need. So mm. if that person can also have done a paramedic course, yes. So these are the kind of duplicate roles that we're looking for. And let let your mind run wild because you could bring a telescope and spend your nights observing the sky will be in a remote location. You could make sand sculptures on a large scale that can be seen by satellites that fly over. Um, I'm like making these up as I go along. I'm like hoping to uh, My neural some, network is exploding here. Some creative. <laughs> yeah, so please, so please apply for anyone who's excited by this idea. Oh We're going to spend um, months in each location. So certainly over a month in each location. So it will take a bit of resilience, a bit of endurance. We'll be attempting to grow our food. We'll be extracting water, whether from the atmosphere or the ice or whatever environment we're in. We'll be running on solar power. Um, sure. We'll be filming the whole experiment for a documentary series. So this is uh, where the applications um, become really important because we want people with stories to tell. Mm. We want people to be motivated by a reason, whether it's um, you know making the world a better place, becoming more aware of waste or whatever the personal motivation is. We want them to bring their story to our story, which is one of humanity at the end. We want to demonstrate community spirit. Um, we want to demonstrate good team dynamics, mm. um, able to perform tasks, able to have fun together in extreme environments because we're all facing some kind of extremity in one way or the other. We need to prepare to go to Mars because this is the next big thing for humanity. It's I, I can't even 
begin to imagine the kind of explosion of ideas that's going to happen once we know people are living on Mars and I hope to be one of them. Mm. We can't predict, you know, like when the first transistor was built, we didn't predict social media. Um, <laughs> you know, these things happen in stages, but once you get out of the box and discover something, whether it's in the laboratory or living on another planet, it leads to a whole new way of thinking. And one thing I think you can't have too much of, and that's imagination and knowledge, you know, as a, as a lover of learning. I can um, apply for imagination. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that's how it all starts. <laughs> I will teach curiosity. <laughs> um, my husband always says, if I can only spend a day between those two ears of yours, I don't know what goes on in that mind of yours. Um, but I'm going to ask you a, a strange question, but the only reason I'm asking is because I'm in this, uh, I'm, I'm currently studying and, you know, they reckon like your syndicate is like the forming, norming, storming stages, like Survivor. Oh, I haven't heard this one. So, okay. So you, you arrive on Survivor, you arrive at your place or your destination, then you have to build a home and you have to do all of that. And then the alliances start mm. and personalities and biases starts kicking in and I want to win. And I'm, I think the best way I'm going to win is if I'm, if I'm with this person or this person, I want to get rid of them. So I'm going to blindside this one. What does mm. it out when I play? I can't remember the whole the whole thing. But anyway, this is what it's like being in um, in a syndicate. So um, <laughs> you form and you're so excited. And you're like, hello, <laughs> this is so excited to meet you. And then the storming stage comes where the personalities just erupt. And then the norming stage where you start getting along and trying to work together. Mm. Those dynamics are going to play off going to Mars because you can have very different personalities, different skill sets. Everybody's going to have a different opinion. I mean, how are you going to navigate that part? Because human beings still stay human beings. You can't mm. take those biases away. So there are a number of ways I could approach that. One, one is to say <laughs> potentially when we're in extreme environments, um, it can bring out the best in us. And this is shown in studies of teams in Antarctica, for example, of teams performing in submarines or in the space station, that the sense of extremity, um, in fact, manifests in an increased cohesion within the team because you realize that cooperation is the, the only thing between you and death in this extreme environment. The cooperation with the team, um, the technology playing its role and also collaborating towards the, the outcome of, of surviving and performing the tasks that you are supposed to do there. Um, so this kind of interplay between team cohesion or community spirit, uh, call it what you will, and the extremity of the environment is something we want to investigate through generating a lot of data. So through Proudly Human, we don't expect to train a specific crew of people to go to Mars or Europa or any other interesting place in the solar system that um, the younger generation may have in mind because they, they <laughs> over Mars, they want to go further. <laughs> oh, but, my gosh. Uh, whatever, whatever environment um, you're thinking of, we want to – Put people in extreme environments and then uh, look at the personality types, look at the expertise, look at the conditions, look at the situations and collect data on how the team responded to those mm. so that we can get some kind of overview over not so much the individuals um, that should be selected, but rather in the kind of team composition that is successful. Um, but more importantly, the activities that the team engages in, because I believe you can mitigate conflict through perhaps a boxing class on Friday afternoon when everyone's <laughs> <laughs> over it. I think exercise, I think good sleep, I think 
think it's simple at the end, you know, a balanced diet, good sleep, good exercise goes a long way. Um, but then at the heart of it is a, a common vision. And mm. perhaps in the envi- in the survivor context, you know, you've already thrown the biggest spanner into the works by making it a competition where only one mm. person can win. Can we remove that? <laughs> can we remove that aspect <laughs> when we're dealing with communities? And at the end, it's not about anyone winning when we when we are living as a community and trying to bring out the best in a team. It's about the team achieving its objectives. And I think one thing that the people who go to Mars will have in common, in spite of diverse cultural backgrounds, diverse expertise, diverse opinions on many things, will be that sense of curiosity-driven exploration and the potential to generate new knowledge from that. Um, I think this will characterize the the groups of people who agree to go. Um, Financially motivated, perhaps, but not in the beginning, because coming back is a risky business, so there's no guarantee that you'll cash in your paycheck. Um, (laughs) I was thinking about that this morning, actually. I was wondering... Eventually, yeah. eventually, I guess people will be perhaps uh, contracted uh, on well-paying contracts to go do things on Mars. But in the beginning, I think we'll have that window where we can tap into a common vision in terms of a motivation beyond this greed-driven, profit-driven society that we come from, but rather thinking about something else, something more fundamental, and that's about uh, you know enhancing the experience for each member of the team in order to achieve a common goal. Mm. Um, And that common goal is multifaceted, but in the end, I think it's about celebrating who we are as humans. Um, hence proudly human because you know this this was a hashtag or a, a company name or a website even that wasn't taken at all you know we might have like proudly south african or proudly african or whatever but the proudly human part wasn't very common <laughs> commonly used <laughs> isn't it that's scary I've, I've even had pushback where people say how could you you know how can you say we're proud to be human you know that's that's a despicable statement look at the mess <laughs> we've made and i said yes but if we don't dive deep into ourselves and, and find something that we're proud of then there really is no point to go on then we may as well, you know, end our species now and let the rest of the species on the planet have a chance. So true. If we can't find something we're proud of, then let's forget it. And of course, I believe there are many things to be proud of, you know, when we mm. look back at the resilience of our ancestors. Whatever ancestral lineage we are from, originally all from Africa, as the scientific theory goes, but uh, whatever, wherever we come from, I think we've got major examples of hugely heroic and resilient deeds by our ancestors, whether it's like mm. hiking across ridiculous distances on foot through famine um, without health, you know, ne- never mind... Uh, uh, yeah, looking uh, for spices. <laughs> exactly, whether it's by ship or on foot, um, and we owe it to generations to come. You know, if we don't understand and identify things about our, our society that make us proud, then what kind of future are we handing to the next generations? So I think uh, maybe that's the, the take home to look into ourselves and try mm. to understand what it is about us uh, individually, what it is about our activities on a daily basis, what it is about our job, our community, our family, our profession, our expertise that makes us proud and focus on that. Because if you're spending a, a majority of your day doing something you're not proud of, what kind of messages that's sharing with the next so generations true. and the people around us? So. I think maybe the pandemic has shaken everything up where we can say, okay, I'm getting rid of that aspect of my daily uh, activities because it's not something I'm proud of, in fact. And let me focus on the things that I feel like I'm really doing something good here, something I'd be proud to tell upcoming generations about and share knowledge on. Um, and that's that's the way forward, I think. And when we break it down, we need power, we need water, we need food, and we need communication systems. Um, communication systems are, are a tough one because 
I think all all South Africans have thought about getting off grid for power. Um, so the failure of ESCOM is a good thing. In that oh my sense. gosh! Don't go there. That's where the solar system comes in helpful. Yeah. So solar, yes. Okay. The batteries are expensive, but then we need to get together in communities and, and spend money on infrastructure on a community basis. It's not on average affordable for the household to get this battery. Is like fifty thousand rand alone. Sure. Um, so, but as a community, yes, we can offset the reliance on ESCOM by setting up this water. I mean. Water, we're really terrible at. You know, most people don't even have a water tank. And yes, that, that, that's one thing that annoys me. And now with all this rain, I mean, did we build extra infrastructure to capture the oh. overflow in periods of excess rain so that when we have the drought, which we know will return, <laughs> we are prepared? I guess not again. <laughs> um, we but- buy yourself a JoJo. Yes, on a small scale, but on a large scale, where does your water come from and where does it go? That's something mm. each one of us should be investigating and understanding. True. Um, food production, you know, we've got so much disused space in the city centre. I stay in Bramfontein while I'm in Joburg, so looking around, a lot of buildings are discarded. With our beautiful sunlight coming in every day, we don't need to fork out on the on the LED lighting arrays. We can actually put these gardens on rooftops and disused car parks, providing food. I mean, that will at least provide more budget for people to spend on other things if they're able to produce food locally. Again, this is a community-based activity. Doing it alone is not necessarily effective enough. But communication systems is a tough one. So the food, the power um, and the water, we can kind of get our heads around. But how do we go off grid in terms of communication systems? And the answer to that is difficult because we are reliant on the Vodafones of the world to build the towers on high and up on the hill to provide the satellite uh, links uh, for, for areas that aren't, don't have access to towers. But these are things we need to think about. You know, How much do we rely on a society or a government that we maybe don't agree with? Um, and how can we start to think about becoming more efficient, more community-based, more local mm. in our resource use? Of course, having these these things in place, because as our technological abilities increase, people who don't have internet will, as we've said earlier in the discussion, just become unable to participate in society. Okay. Um, not because they're not smart enough, but just because they, not they the didn't grow up with internet. Yeah. Um, you know. I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. I know that I, I'm not supposed to ask this question because I, I work a lot in the digital arena. But my question is always, what if Google shuts down? Everything is in Google. Like how to plant a tree, how to grow a herb garden, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how to be sustainable. And Google did go off for a, for a, a couple of hours a while. Uh, yeah, like, I think it was last it. month yeah, or yeah, the yeah. month before. I can't remember. And, um, and we were all shocked that this happened, but they have to, um, install I think four servers a day now I'm just trying to think in my mind if that's four servers a day how many servers is that in 10 years so like do you know how to get home from work everyone should be (laughs) (laughs) we're going to explore all over again the GPS satellites get taken out by uh, some incoming meteorites or or a solar flare can I actually get home (laughs) Now, I'm not from Joburg, so I might have to admit that I'd need to draw, you to draw me a map. This is the Joburg sign. Airport sign. Aim for the, aim for the hill brow <laughs> Like, I mean, no, seriously, like, wonder, like, everything is on the internet. It's in, it's invisible on this platform. And what if it crashes or something terrible happens or a tsunami happens and the cables are destroyed? We lose all of the generation's hard work and history in one go. Yeah, and this is a great motivation for putting a library on the moon. I mean, uh, um, Thank you. Michael Sims, <laughs> I met, um, who was worked at JPL and NASA for many years, had this moon library idea, which I found fascinating. It's like it's too dangerous to leave all of our knowledge on Earth. I mean, 
asteroid impact, solar flare. I mean, we've got this Apophis, which used to be a zero probability impact, but now is non-zero. It's still small. Um, it will come by in 2028 or 2029, and we'll be able to assess uh, in more detail the composition, the surface, the structure, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but basically, its orbit is shifting from a purely gravitational orbit because of getting heated by the sun. And then certain volatiles on the surface um, you know, from the heat from the sun actually cause like an outgassing, which is a little propel. Sure. Um, so it's now varying from the predictable orbit uh, that we had in mind. So 2069 is a, a non-zero impact potential by Apophis. So, I mean, <laughs> this might not take out everything on Earth, but uh, as we know, it can cause massive extinction events through lots of different species, which has certainly happened in the past. Mm. Yeah, and for me, knowledge is really the key. So even if we all get exterminated, it would be nice to think that all of the knowledge that we've created, you know, that the internet could be backed up like on the moon or somewhere else. It's an extremely dangerous game we're playing to continue on this perilous path of kind of destroying the environment that supports us and not exploring further. Um, so that's that's not so normally true. the way I'd pitch the ex- – I think we are curiosity-driven. We are explorers by nature. And, in fact, this is what has sustained us in the past. You know, humans nearly went extinct many times, Homo sapiens sapiens, in our past. In fact, evidence shows that there was a group of around 20 to 30 breeding individuals that is, in fact, the origin of all Homo sapiens on Earth. And this was in the, like, Titsikama area in the south of South Africa. So there are many, they're like, competing theories about what happened around 200,000 years ago. But one of them is that there was a group of 20 to 30 breeding individuals from the south coast of South Africa that then gave rise to the rest of the population today. So that means that there were Homo sapiens scattered around in other parts, but because of climate change, they didn't survive. So guess what? This can happen again. It's happened multiple times in the past. It can happen again. Um, So resilience, I know corporates love to throw the word around. I'm not sure how they would define it. But resilience for me means can you provide your own power, water, and food minimally? Can you think about building communication systems on top of that? Because those are the four categories. Okay, shelter I've left off, which is obvious we need to shelter. Um, But those categories of things we should have some knowledge of how we would do those ourselves. I want to say in case of the collapse of society, but I said I didn't want to get apocalyptic. (laughs) It already sounds like we're already there. What do you mean? Yeah. So in in 2020, in fact, uh, my boyfriend and I went down into an uninhabited valley in the Tsitsikama area, carried all of our stuff down and built a cabin. We didn't want anyone to know where it was or get any help, so we carried over two tons of stuff, poles, cement bags, uh, plastic, metal, everything to build our, our double-story cabin in the end. Um, yeah, and we lived in it for four months. So Wow, you were adventurous by note. So now I know how much water I need per day. I know how hard it is to carry that water. And as much exactly. as this was a fun exercise, this is how billions of people live on the planet. Totally. Um, oh, you're right. They don't even have a river flowing by. They need to walk five to ten kilometers maybe to get not even clean water. This is not philosophy. This is practical reality. <laughs> we need food and water to survive. And there are lots of us who sort of have no idea where that stuff comes from and where it goes. So I think this is the start of, of trying to remedy the way our society does things is to to think critically about each of our individual consumption. Yes, eating less meat and more veg perhaps, but I think on a more fundamental level, where do each of those things come from? How much resources are required to run that? And is it sustainable? And for most answers, the, the answer will be no, it's not sustainable. It is only accessible to a small portion of society. And what about the rest, you know, because it's expensive. 
Yeah, eating is increasingly <laughs> expensive nowadays. Ginger is not <laughs> uh, extremely like expensive. Two peppers almost cost like 40 rand. I mean, like, let's talk about this for a moment. 40 rand. And these are things that grow from seeds. So, you know, what is preventing us from setting up grows, like community grows, where we can grow the, the peppers and other expensive things that don't require trees? When you start talking trees, obviously it's a bit more complicated, but leafy greens, berries, um, those kind of veg that grow loads. Yeah, it's a perfect, perfect candidate to seed to grow in seeds in the greenhouse conditions. Yeah. That's the one thing I want to learn is I want to learn to do my, I think I spoke to you about it last time. I still haven't learned <laughs> to do my own veggie garden because I just think, I don't know what's on it. I don't know, like the, the fact that some of my vegetables can last a long time in my fridge where you buy organic, it's like two days. I'm like, yeah, you need to change disclaimer? the way you eat as well and eat what is available when it's available, not uh, when exactly. you feel like. Yeah. We have to use our, our human resources effectively and, and, and waste not, want not. Um, but you see, I could sit here again for hours and hours and hours. So I don't know, maybe the next time you are going to be in Mars. I don't know. But anyway, if not, then we're going to have to have a follow-up interview and just like keep progress of your story. And then maybe we can create like a, like a chapter of Adriana Marie's journey and then come send it to the moon. We'll send it to the moon, okay? To the library. <laughs> yeah, I'll get all the library on my way to Mars. Okay, looking at me, what? <laughs> we'll just ask Richard Branson very nicely. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. As always, it's been absolutely amazing. And um, guys, if you haven't listened to the first interview, you have to listen to that. That's also just, your mind will just like stretch in all directions. And I'm sure that people would agree. I mean, this was such an incredible insight and session and, and good luck with Proudly Human. We all need the human in the system. Thanks so much for having me, Carmen. Yeah, your enthusiasm in the midst of the <laughs> pandemic is infectious. So I look forward to reading your application for the author. Oh, yeah, project. I'm going to teach curiosity. <laughs> Imagination. It's, it's proudlyhuman.com um, if anyone's interested in checking out. We're going to have a link below. Cool. We yeah, please do apply. I mean, this is something you play a part in history. This is really incredible stuff. So in the link below, you will get all the information and the application process and the website. Yeah. Right. Fantastic. Thanks, Carmen. Bye. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Uya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.